do it, Detroit. Keep the crowd rolling. From New York, Chicago to Portland, pump it up. There's jams for you. Show the world what the real bad boys can do. We swept the Lakers in four. Now we're back to take the title once more. Here in Detroit, we're not bad. We're good. Hammer time. Let's make it understood. Well done, man. Only paralleled by your Ninja Turtles rap, I think. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> well That's done. A lot, of, a lot of years of watching the VHS championship Pistons, baby. Oh, those those VHS tapes got to work out, man. Um, that was yeah, MC was Hammer, by the way. MC Hammer, the pants. Um, yeah, we were talking about how – well, first of all, welcome back to another episode of the Kramer Bros podcast. We might just keep that as our – intro for all the episodes now um i just thought the people might appreciate that no i I suspect that they will um yeah last night was was cool because there was so much airtime for the bad boys detroit pistons and it was unique watching it as a pistons fan because i think that our experience and everybody in michigan that that watched those pistons teams or appreciates them is thinks much differently about some of the things that were said uh, than maybe the rest of the country does. There's just a lot of um, details that, you know, really it's only the people that are the fans of the Pistons that are going to really be taking that side probably. Yeah, I think that if I was from another part of the country, you know, probably not a Pistons fan. But uh, because I'm from Michigan, huge Piston fan. And so even though they were trying to bash the Pistons a little bit, I kind of liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. I think the hatred was real. MJ said as much in one of the episodes. He was like, yeah, the hatred still still goes to to today. And next week we're going to get to see the 92 Olympic team. And that was a team that um, Isaiah didn't make and largely because, you know, Jordan and Pippen didn't want him on the team. So it, goes, it runs deep, man. And there was something with Isaiah and Magic Johnson how – they were friends and they kind of became enemies at some point. Yeah. Really weird stuff. I'm, I'm very curious to see what they uh, show in the documentary. Yeah. I forgot that that was also a storyline too. And I think they've since made up or made up shortly after, but um, it just talk about like another, just kind of another thing. You don't think of Isaiah in the same light as a lot of those other superstars of the time. And he went back to back in a really tough era. And I wonder historically how people would think of him if he was on that 92 team. Yeah, I mean, for those that were able to watch Isaiah, and for me it was more just watching all the the VHS and stuff, that you can go back and watch some of the YouTube clips. There's not nearly as much on him as a random high school player highlight film now on YouTube, but he he was on another level. I mean, he was – he was Iverson, except he could shoot better than Iverson. Um, he couldn't necessarily jump like Iverson, but you want to talk about first step, quickness. Uh, he was a high-level defensive player, a better passer. And I say this, like, overall, like, I'm an Iverson fan. But Iverson came in, changed the game. He had the crossover. He had this, this swag. He came at, in at a time um, where I felt like culture was kind of ready for a person like Iverson. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah just came in and it was supposed to be magic. 
and Jordan and Bird. And all of a sudden there's this little six foot guy who's like, no, man, this is our league, you know? And they, they go to the finals three times in a row, win two titles. And like, it's crazy to say, but I mean, Iverson's not, Iverson's regarded as a phenomenal player. He's not even close to Isaiah Thomas Mm -hmm. as a player, but how is he remembered? Right. Oh, how could, you know, Iverson, this is Isaiah Thomas playing in one of the hardest eras of basketball extremely high level. Some of the all-time greatest players are all playing at the same time. And the Pistons come in and win two titles during that period. Isaiah Thomas is one of the greatest guards in NBA history. Yeah, 100%. And he is a, he is a good comparison for somebody like Allen Iverson because they kind of, yeah, they're thought of you know much differently. And I mean, the, those Pistons championships now were so long ago that a lot of current day fans don't have an understanding of like, no, what that actually meant winning championships when you had three of top 10 players of all time, all playing at one time. Now I don't think Isaiah is a top 10 player of all time, but um, those other three guys definitely are. Yeah. And for them to, I mean, we'll talk about the Jordan doc, but to talk about those Pistons teams, it was similar to the, the Pistons team that won the title and, the 2000s where Isaiah Thomas was a superstar. He was more of a superstar than I think any of the 2000 Pistons were obviously. Yeah. But at the same time, it was a hodgepodge group of guys that were, had been traded around, moved around trying to find the right spot. They hung their hat on defense. Um, but you had a guy like Isaiah Thomas, the head of the snake. And um, he was just a, an absolute winner. So the one common thread between those bad boys teams and the second three-peat for the Bulls was the worm, Dennis Rodman. And they, they really highlighted him in, in a lot of ways. Uh, some of his you know, mental health struggles, but also just his unique play on the court. I mean, unbelievable like how he – I didn't watch him day in and day out, but obviously he was playing like this more of a small forward position when he was with the Pistons guarding – a lot of wings, so Pippen and Jordan, and then he he checked Magic a lot um, as well in the finals. And then to see him, like, transition and just become this huge bruising guy, um, you know, he was still shorter than most power forwards or centers at the time. But I was just looking up his rebounding numbers, and it's just – it's wild. Like, do you think he's the best rebounder of all time? Pound for pound. Yeah. I mean, Will Chamberlain put up silly numbers. It's hard to say that Will Chamberlain wasn't the greatest, you know, although there's not really any film film of him, but just by sheer numbers. But I think it's better. You know, I've seen Shaq play. Rodman was a better rebounder than Shaq, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which sounds stupid to say that, but, you know, it's true. Yeah. Uh, Rodman had – he averaged 12.5 rebounds in that last championship season. For the Pistons, and then the next year, so that would have been the year that they finally lost to Jordan's Bulls. He jumped up to eighteen point seven rebounds a game at six seven or six eight. So he he had an increase of exactly six rebounds a game in that year. That's crazy because twelve and a half rebounds is unbelievable, you know. Uh, and the pace of the game wasn't as fast as it is today either, so there's less shots. Mm-hmm. That stretch that he had. So if you include that. 
that 90, 91 season, he averaged 12 and a half. And then in 97, 98 with Chicago, he averaged 15. So I'll run down them real quick because they're just impressive. He had 18.7, 18, 17, 16.8, 14.9, 16.1, and 15.0. Um, those are, I mean, that's crazy. We have, I think Giannis is leading the league in rebounding right now, and it's closer to like 14 or 15, which is, that's a really good year um, now. But, and, but again, the crazy thing is Rodman was doing this when the league was big. Yeah. When the league was super, super physical, and he was still doing crazy things defensively and rebounding because every team had, I mean, back then you had like a seven foot center and you had like a six, nine or six, 10 power forward, mm-hmm. you know, and then you had a six, seven or six, eight small forward. And um, then there's this six, eight Rodman who's just going to work against all of them. Size was so different back then. Like now we see a lot of small ball and stuff, but I, I remember even in my lifetime, there were times where if someone was six eight or six nine, be like he might even be a little bit too small to play power forward. Like people wanted a six ten power forward, and they definitely wanted a seven foot center. And it's crazy, yeah. I mean, he's checking wings, he's checking uh, big guys. More, I think, later in his career. Um, but the, the interesting thing is the way that that second round of uh, bulls were constructed. Their last three titles. They're designed for small ball. Like, they're the perfect small ball team. They're just 20 years ahead of mm-hmm. time. And um, in those Pistons teams were also really, really good small ball teams. You had a stretch five in Bill Lampier, one of the only centers that shot threes. I mean, so far ahead of his time. And then you had all these other players who could guard multiple positions. Isaiah Thomas really would have been the one guard who would have had trouble switching and guarding like a six, seven guy. Yeah. Although he was super tough and super quick. Um, but a lot of that style of play, even though, you know, they were more pound you half court, that team really could have played some small ball as well. If they would have decided, decided to really interesting to see how, the teams that are really, really good can play in any era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are the uh, difficult conversations that you know people try to have, and at some point, it's just like you know you can't account for every variable. But uh, people like to compare Rodman and say that he would wipe the floor with Draymond, and it's like you know Rodman was on a totally different level than Draymond ever was, I think. But um, you can't tell me Draymond couldn't play back then either, or um, Durant or that bird couldn't play now. Like it's just, I don't know. At some point you just have to understand that the greats could play at any, at any time. Wilt Chamberlain would have lifted weights if he would have played today and he would have been awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And the, I want, I do want to spend a handful of time talking about Rodman, but what my biggest frustration. And so I know there's some people that listen to this podcast is people were, I was reading something on Twitter that saying, you know, Jordan wouldn't be as good now because look at how athletic all the NBA players are now. And I mentioned this in the last podcast. Number one, if you don't watch the the Jordan highlights, 
and you don't think that's an elite athlete, even by today's standards, we can't we can't have a reasonable argument because you're crazy. Okay. Secondly, those still were the best athletes at that time in the world playing the game, and look how much more athletic he was than them. So if everybody has the same knowledge and training, and Tim Grover has 30 more years of working with Michael Jordan of experience and science backed into their workouts, how much more athletic is Michael Jordan going to be in today's game than he was in the 90s? As I said before, he might be dunking from, you know, between two feet beyond the free throw line. Then, yeah. I mean, think of the technology and everything that they didn't have. Now you're going to give Michael Jordan all that stuff. He's going to become even more of an alien. Yeah, they said it. I mean, he, they said he didn't start lifting weights consistently until after he was getting sick of being beaten by the Pistons, which I think was that 90, 91 season. Um, yeah, you have to imagine. And, and dude, he's going to use everything. Like you hear the stories of Kobe Bryant flying to Germany to get these weird platelet therapies and like all this stuff or all the things that LeBron does, Jordan is going to be doing all of those things. And um, yeah, it was like, I, I said, or I was thinking of this weird analogy as the conversations, you can't avoid them of who's better, who's the greatest of all time, who would have done what and what era. But I, I was like, this would be <laughs> like having a conversation with someone who thinks the earth is flat. And then you give them a window seat on like a NASA space shuttle and they still argue that the earth is flat. It's like, no, this makes no sense. Like what more do you want? What more do you want to see out of Jordan? Like to consider that he could play at any time or that he's the greatest of all time. I think it's just blasphemous to think anything else, but there's still people out there that, that think that. Um, Yeah. I mean, what did you take away from the Rodman stuff? So a few different things. Mental health has become such a big factor in the world and in sports. And so I'm looking back at the Rodman um, episode and I'm thinking how much differently people would have tried to help him now than they did before. And it might've really helped his career, uh, his life, you know, now, I mean, he might be, a different person like everybody makes choices on how they're going to live but he would have had so much more help now with what we know about mental health that that's a person that that needed it that's a person that had some real skeletons in, in the closet and it's kind of sad like I, I just like when I was watching it I, I just kind of felt bad for Dennis Rodman thinking like, man, we didn't do anything regarding mental health back then. Mm-hmm. And um, it could have made a big impact not only on his life, but more importantly, not only on his career, but more importantly in his, in his life. Um, it seemed like when he and Chuck Daly separated, like he really just started to mm-hmm. go downhill um, you know, he had the gun thing in Detroit. He had with San Bounce in San Antonio. That was not going to be a good fit in San Antonio. He comes back to Chicago and it's better, but there's still so many things that we know now that we didn't know back then. Feel feel bad for him. 
Um, another thing that stuck out to me was he was a two-time defensive player of the year. He had um, seven rebounding titles, as you mentioned, seven All-NBA first team, one-time All-NBA second team defense. And the one of the guys said that he thought – Rodman was the best defender he's ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I think if, if you ask more people around about just the Rodman stuff, you'd probably hear more like that. But I'm thinking of how locked down those Chicago Bulls teams were. You know, Jordan had nine All-NBA first-team defense. It's a record. Pippen has eight All-NBA first-team defense and two second-team. Rodman has seven first-team defense and one second-team. How are you going to score on those guys? I mean, it's just a nightmare to try to go against. And then one of those guys, Dennis Rodman, like Jordan's crazy. Rodman's crazy in a different kind of way. Like he wants it to hurt. Like he has – I would say if you – people have different levels of pain tolerance – he, he obviously has an extremely high level of pain tolerance. So he like doesn't care hardly if, if there's pain, he barely feels it. Right. He got so big and strong uh, throughout his career that he was able to bang because he needed the body to bang as he was switching his positions against like the Carl Malones and the Dave Robinsons, the Patrick Ewing. So he's checking those guys. Um, and his athleticism was, off the charts and it's it's a, another example of <laughs> if you took away half of his partying and gave him some of the science that we have today look what he already did with his body like he when they they talked about how he was a student of the game how he watched game film he was an exercise nut he was always working out and what if you gave him a little more like science and how to train yourself dude it would have been nuts um I remember there was a story about him playing like a full game, playing like 40 minutes in a game. And then after the game finished, he goes on the treadmill and he's running and he's doing like a 40 minute, like just sprinting. Cause he's not tired. He's just like, I gotta get my workout in after the game. Um, just, uh, the, the genetics, the motor, the combination of size, athleticism. And then as Jordan mentioned, Dennis was smart, right? He was just using that IQ in a different kind of way for rebounding. Really, really interesting to see how he talked about it and watching, you know, look at some of the game film. Because I think today we don't think of uh, defenders and rebounders as being high IQ players. We think of them just as hard workers. That's not always the case. Yeah, the stuff you bring up is is really important. Uh, I was thinking about the mental health stuff too, and just I mean, there wasn't that focus on it back then. And also, you just because people didn't really have an understanding of like they, you just. I remember growing up and and hearing from people, "Oh, Dennis Rodman changed his hair again," and that was like really all you knew about him is you just thought he was a little like eccentric. Um, and then to actually hear like what some of his real struggles are and that he was living in the backyard of somebody and cooking his own food over a campfire and all these different things. And I can't speak to, you know, what kind of supports like Phil Jackson actually had in place. Like if he was trying to get him to go to counseling and stuff like that. 
Uh, but when you hear about, you know, him just needing to blow off steam and go to Vegas for two, three, four days, whatever it was, um, it's sad. It's like, okay, so, so here's someone who has so much going on in his head that he feels like he has to go and just fill himself up with substances and just be able to try to shut his brain off like any way that he can. And, um, it almost seemed like, like the Bulls players knew that he, that he had issues and he was just like a a tool. And again, I don't want to assume that Michael Jordan isn't actually his friend or that Phil Jackson, uh, wasn't actually there to have heartfelt conversations or try to get him some help, some mental health help. Um, but it, it did just seem like he was this, this tool and he kind of knew it too. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to blow off steam. I'm going to be crazy. Um, but I'm also going to get the job done when it, when it comes time. And it's just a really interesting aspect of that whole thing. Um, because I've heard just crazy stories about Dennis Rodman, like they would go play a back to back and he wouldn't have slept for two nights. And then he'd be coming into practice and just like dunking all over everybody, you know, just like this endless energy. Um, Phil Jackson in some of his books and stuff has said like Dennis Rodman, you don't bring him into your office to have a conversation. Like you have to go to the concert that he's partying at and talk to him there. You know, like that's where he's more able to, to hear you. And, and it's just like, it's just really, really fascinating the personality that he is. Um, but yeah, like you said, like it's also a little bit sad, but what a unique guy in so many different ways, man. It was cool to see him get highlighted like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope, you know, he's doing, he's doing okay. They tracked him down for the documentary. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And um, just a really unique team. The more you dig into those Bulls teams, the more you realize how unusual that team was, you know, with all the things of this is your last year. They're pushing the greatest player of all time, the winningest coach of all time, out before anybody's actually beat him. You know, yes, Scottie Pippen signed that contract. I feel like today there would be some type of renegotiation, like, hey, Scottie, re-up for another five years and we'll, you know, do this or whatever. They were ready to get rid of Scottie Pippen. Like, this would never happen in today's game. It's crazy that this actually happened. You have the GOAT. (laughs) You have this championship pedigree with this team and coach. And the management is ready to get rid of everyone so they can rebuild for a championship team. Now, you're you're riding it as long as you can, and you're just trying to fill in the pieces around Mm -hmm. to to give those stars – what they need. It's just, uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, the only, yeah, the only close comparison I think we would have right now is because like when Tim Duncan was in his last year, Dirk Nowitzki or even Kobe, like they weren't really challenging for championships. Timmy might've been the closest there. Um, but it might be just like these superstars that are able to sign one year contracts, you know, so LeBron just signing, year after year after year in Cleveland, a single year and kind of in some ways leaving people, <laughs> leaving teams and, and fan bases and stuff hostage till he figures out what to do. And that is really weird. Something I didn't understand or, or realize was like, man, it would have been really uh, crazy to be a person living in Chicago and be a fan of this team and being like, is Jordan going to 
be back next year? Like, do I need to bring my kid to a game because this is the last time I'll see him? Or are we going to go for four in a row next year? Like, that would make sense, right? Like, Kraus is going to figure out something to bring everybody back so we can go for four in a row. Um, it, yeah, so many dynamics that are just crazy. So last night I'm watching with with my wife, and and we're like, can you believe that they were about to win their third championship in a row and they were getting run out of town? I was like, can you believe that? Like, they could have – I think 99, correct me if I'm wrong, was that a lockout year? I think it was shortened, yeah. That's when the Spurs won. The Spurs won. <laughs> the Bulls were better than the Spurs, even a year older. So the question was, would they have been able to get, get through the East? Mm-hmm. Um, I think their matchup, was it the Knicks that made it through? Um, what did Bulls those Knicks make? teams have? Was that Pretty like a sure. Spreewell team? Yeah, I think it was the Spreewell-Houston team. Um and so they would have beat they would have beat that team, um, and so that would have made four <laughs> titles in a row. Um, and then you go with the first stretch of two years where the Rockets won it, and I'm looking at that and I'm saying, let's say the Bulls won one out of those two, mm-hmm. right? I think that's pretty realistic to say. Um, I can't say they would have won both. I think a lot of people want to think MJ would have went eight for eight. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I think he would have gone eight for nine. Is yeah. what I think. I think that um, he would have won the title in '99. Everybody thinks he just like I want to retire, and and you know, the, as this documentary goes out, they got pushed. They got pushed out, and I don't know. Like maybe Jordan retires after his second three P, but if you're bringing the whole grew back and he had three in a row already. Hey, you want to try four in a row? They might do that, especially with a lockout season. Um, It would have gave them more time to rest and recover. Jordan was getting older. Those guys were, you know, all those title runs. So it would have gave them more time to recover. I think the lockout would have helped the Bulls in that season. Um, I do think that, you know, there's a good chance that either the Rockets win one of those two titles or – there was this um, – Jordan's father was killed. There was all this gambling stuff going on. And I I think that there might have been a point where there was a little too much outside pressure, too much of a stretch going at, at an extremely high level that the Rockets would have been able to win one of those titles. Um. So you're talking eight championships in nine years. That's uh, he's already the goat. But I mean, realistically, we're talking about a guy who retired twice. He had multiple primes mm-hmm. and he retired twice during those times. <laughs> I mean, that's how good Jordan was. It's crazy in those teams. Yeah, it's it's hard to decide like what his finals record would have been had he not had those gaps like in his career been pushed out of town too early uh, because you think year in and year out the Bulls probably had the best team so then the only thing that would derail them would be things like just playing that many seasons in a row all the way through the playoffs or whatever off-court stuff is happening like in 99-2000 um, or would have been 98-99 um, does Rodman just completely disappear. 
I don't know. So there's just a lot of, a lot of strange things, but I would have loved to have seen um, them play the Rockets in one of those finals where you had, I mean, Akeem was, they wouldn't have slowed him down. I don't think, I think he would have, he, he averaged 20, 28 and 11, basically those two years. I don't know what his final stats were. Um, would, would he have been like a top three guy, top two guy that year, those years? Well, he won the MVP. He was the best player. I mean, um, I'm talking about even when he was playing and Jordan was – some of the years where him and Jordan were both in the league, was he always a top three guy? Um, it's kind of funny because he wasn't – Hakeem wasn't this marketed athlete. Barkley was marketable because he was like this real brash, you know, unique style of play. Um Elijah Wan was from Africa, right? And playing in Houston, which especially at the time, I don't think was a really big market. Um, it wasn't like this Elijah Wan. And then all of a sudden they win back-to-back titles and you're like, oh, this is like the best player in the NBA during this, this time. And it was clear he was the best player in the NBA. Um, but there was never – in my opinion, this kind of narrative. prelude to, to him and narrative coming up of how good he actually was, uh, even though he was that good. I mean, he's defensive player of the year, MVP. You look at the statistics, you're like, wow. You watch the film and you're like, this guy's footwork and shooting form and size. Um, he's the all-time NBA leader in blocks. Like, he was on another level. He was my favorite player, which – people's favorite player usually isn't like a center, but that's how good Hakeem Olajuwon was that when you, when Hakeem was on TV, you're like, I got to watch the Rockets play because he's going to fake somebody out and leave their jock strap on the floor mm-hmm. and embarrass somebody so bad. And usually you think that's like a guard breaking somebody's ankles. He was 6'10 breaking people's ankles. Like it was crazy. That's one of my all-time favorite basketball highlights is when he put uh, Rodman in like the spin cycle um, on the baseline. Remember with the shot fake or Robinson, yeah, um, with the shot fake, and then the the kind of like we saw Rondo do it a lot, where he would push the ball out from under the basket and just so had Hakeem Robinson. Was the first one like people call it the Rondo? It's a specific pivot where you step, you fake the basketball out, they go with it, and then you pivot back the other way. And Hakeem was the guy who originated that that fake, you know, which is crazy. Again, he was a center doing moves now that, like, fast forward 25 years, we're the only people that even use that move. There's a couple really flashy guards that do it. Mm-hmm. And 25 years ago, there was only one guy who was doing it, and he was the center and the best player in the league. And, you know, he was just so far ahead of his time. Um, the moves that he was doing even now are super advanced. He was so much fun to watch. So a little bit of a Hakeem <laughs> tangent there. But, yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's tough to go against Jordan because he never lost in the finals. But those two finals teams I thought were um, were, were really good come playoff time. I know one of those seasons that they won the title – They might have been as low as a six seed. I think there was some random stuff that happened with the Rockets one year. Um, But Hakeem Olajuwon, 
became the best player in the league as soon as Michael Jordan left. Mm-hmm. Jordan comes back and then, okay, he came, jumps, jumps down a little bit and then, you know, he got older. So um, to say that they wouldn't have had a good chance to win one of those two titles when Jordan was playing, you know, that might be saying a little too much. Right. Um, I think it was also interesting because people who know Michael Jordan now, like really only equate him to winning. You only think of him as a winner. You're like, man, that dude won the biggest games. And for there to have at one point been a narrative that he was only a scorer and not a winner is just even, it's crazy to think about. Um, But, you know, early in his career when he couldn't get past the Pistons and he was winning those scoring titles, it was, it was, uh, that was like the narrative that was starting to surround him. And I didn't know that there was a year. So when he was playing for Doug Collins and they talked about how, you know, Doug was probably his first like good coach that he had, but he catered the entire offense to, to Michael. But he, he won MVP. He won all-star game MVP. He won the slam dunk contest and he got defensive player of the year all in the same year. And to me, like, I don't think that you have to have um, a dunk contest win in your, in your bag to be considered like the greatest of all time or to have to be in the running, but that's what contributes. So all those little things are what contribute to just Michael Jordan's like status as a deity is that he embraced like all those things and it, it compiled into just this, this like unimaginable player. And so when people go and are like, you know, LeBron never even entered a dunk contest. It's like, yeah, I don't think that winning a dunk contest uh, matters in the scheme of if you're the greatest player of all time, but it's part of that. It builds into like that greater persona that makes you like this hard to believe player. Yeah. It goes into how is an example of how competitive Jordan was because if he was doing anything, he wanted to win. We talk about all the cards that he's playing on the bus you know, on all those road trips, he wants to win. So, oh, there's a dunk contest. I'm going to be in that all-star game. I'm going to try to win the MVP. I'm not just going to try to win the scoring title. I'm going to also work on being the best defender in the NBA at the same time. So let me lead the league in scoring, right? That was the one thing you didn't mention. He also was leading the league in scoring, right? Right. So lead the league in scoring. He has 10 scoring titles, I think. 10 scoring titles. NBA MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, um, All-Star Game MVP, dunk contest, and then there were multiple years where he also led the league in steals, right? And then that might have been one of those years as well, that year that he led the league in steals. Um, like he wanted to score on you every time and then absolutely lock you up and embarrass you when you had the basketball, and there's never been a player quite like that. What else did you take away – from last night's episodes? You know, I thought the Phil Jackson thing was was really interesting, kind of some of his background. I had forgotten that he won a couple of NBA championships. Mm-hmm. I was really um, – I thought it was really cool that he was coaching in Puerto Rico. He was coaching in the, the CBA. And when you think of somebody who rises to the pinnacle – you don't necessarily think that they're going to take such a bumpy back road to get there. You know, like even Jordan, I mean, you got to go back to the fact that he was cut 
as a sophomore from the varsity team to find like that kind of bump in the road. Cause you go to North Carolina, one of the top programs in the country, you win a national title, multi-time national player of the year. You go to the NBA, you're winning all these awards, championship. Okay. Now we're at the championship level. We're never losing a championship. And it's just kind of this, you're phenomenal from the start almost, right? Until you go all the way back down to when he's like 15 or 16 years old. Phil Jackson, I mean, totally different story, right? And so that was really interesting to hear kind of how he grew up, some of his family history. I was interested in that. I was glad that they shared some of those details. And I think that made a big impact on the team, made a big impact on how long they were able to keep Rodman as a elite player was because even now Jackson's was so unique with, I mean, they're, they're meditating, they're doing yoga, which now the stretching and stuff that mm-hmm. the benefits have, I mean, that was ahead of its time. A lot of people are doing that now. Nobody was doing it back then. There were a lot of things that, he was doing to work on the, the mindset, the staying present and in the moment um, throughout that season and, and his time with the Bulls that I thought was really interesting. I'm glad they spent some time to talk about that as well. Any other things that stuck out with you? I just I keep going back to just how you see the six for six in the finals, but how the line seemed to be so fine when you when you put all these variables into play. So, you know, is Rodman going to be there mentally or physically? Um, what if what is Pippen's ego going to get in the way, which it nearly derailed that last season um, when he was sitting out? Like, yeah. so it's like you see the six for six, but all these other things that could have just easily like derailed a championship in any one of those seasons um, kind of gets lost. And now knowing Phil Jackson too, as the guy that coached Kobe and Shaq and won five championships with the Lakers too. Um, and having read some of his books and stuff, it's like he was, he was a perfect coach to have because he could manage players personalities and he could let Rodman be Rodman and he could figure out how to squeeze championships out of Shaq and Kobe when they didn't really like each other. Um, but also like, and he has an ego too. And so it's just really fascinating um, just seeing it all kind of unfold. So like Collins was kind of, you know, he was doing a, a, a pretty decent job as a coach. Jordan liked him. Typically that's going to be enough to keep your job in the NBA. And um, then to just have Tex winter come in and Phil Jackson and, and start to really apply pressure uh, during, during your last year as coaches is, is pretty crazy. So there's just a lot of personalities and it's a very fine line between winning championships and, and not. Yeah. To win one championship is extremely difficult. So, you know, the fact that you were able to do it six times, just makes it even more impressive. Well, anything else for today? I can't believe I didn't talk about this earlier. The Jordan rules were ahead of its time. So let's break down the Jordan rules. When he's on the wing, you push him to the elbow and you don't let him drive baseline, okay? So we're trying to force middle. That's where the the help is going to be. Funnel him to the middle. Number two, when he's on the top, we want him to go to his left, right? So the Pistons felt that his right hand was a little better than his left hand. Now, 
when you watch Jordan play, it's pick your poison. Like, you can go either way. But the nice thing about guarding a high-level player, when you game plan against a high-level player, even if they can go, you know, at a 99 to their right and a 95 to their left, so you're saying, well, what's the point of pushing? You, if you push them to one side, now everybody knows, right? So it's easier for everyone to be on the same page off the ball because they have an idea, okay, Rodman or Dumars, they're trying to push him to the left. So everybody can prepare for that even before it happens. So that, that's really good. And then number three, when he got the ball in the low post, it's trapped. Bring him down from the top. He's trying to score, right? We got to make him a passer, right? Let have, try to have some of these other guys beat us, okay? So they're trapping from the top side. They're bringing help over after they force the middle. And when he goes baseline, as they mentioned, you put him on the floor. If he gets through to the middle, you put him on the floor, right? And there are so many times where Jordan still goes baseline, and that's where the unbelievable plays, a lot of the unbelievable plays happen. Like he goes baseline, he rises up, and he dunks on your face, or he hangs in the air for like five seconds, moves the basketball all these different ways. He's basically doing all these shot fakes while he's actually in the air, and then he does the reverses. You can use the net, the backboard, and the rim as a way to shield yourself from the defense. That's why the reverse layup is such an uh, effective shot. And so really focusing on trying to keep him away from the baseline. And then that baseline, you're saying, well, we can force him baseline. There's a lot of defenses that want to push you baseline. I think Texas Tech in the NCAA tournament when they lost to Virginia a couple years ago, they want you to go baseline because there's an out-of-bounds line there. Yes, but the other line of thinking is Virginia, the pack line, they don't want you to go baseline. They want to funnel you more to the middle. And one of the reasons they wanted that is although the baseline is there, that baseline isn't going to be able to actually have uh, any action. If I'm Jordan and I'm driving baseline, I know where the baseline is. I'm just not going to go out of bounds, right? And so against a high-level player, it can be more of an advantage to push them to actual people instead of pushing them to a line where they're so athletic, they're so fast, they can maneuver around that line. They might jump out of bounds and then scoop back inside and take the shot. So I really enjoyed hearing them talk about the, the Jordan rules and, you know, having these specific rules for how to stop Jordan. And they couldn't stop him. He's still scoring almost 40 points a game, you know, against the, the Pistons was really, really uh, interesting for me to watch, especially as a Pistons fan. All right. Don't have much more to add. Any of our coaches that are listening, I'm doing a, starting a podcast specifically to help high school basketball coaches primarily um, that should be out in mid-May. We're hoping to have it out mid-May. Um, so obviously we'll keep doing the Kramer Bros podcast. It's a lot of fun talking hoops with Taylor and some of our other brothers as well. Um, but for those that are looking, that are coaches and looking for some things to apply to their basketball team, um, we're going to have a sports-specific podcast uh, to help you guys out in the next month or so as well. Big bro, another great conversation, man. It was fun chopping it up with you. We'll uh, get back at it next week. Episodes four and five, right? Or no? Five and six. Five and six, yeah. Let's do it. All right. All right. Peace. See you guys.